Oh, hey. Did you know that we were sponsored? We have sponsors now? Did you hear about this? No. Did, I mean, where would I have heard about it from? On the podcast. If you listen to the podcast. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to the Tuesday Night Podcast. This is episode 110. This is the podcast about the stories we make while playing the games we love on, around, and under the gaming table. <laughs> but because it's episode 110, that means it's a zero episode. What the heck's a zero episode? Well, if you're a knave and have been listening all along, and that's what we call our listeners, the knaves, you know what's the deal with the zero episodes. It's for all the new knaves that are listening to this podcast. It's the chance for us to talk about the podcast, a meta episode. But with me is the Thelma to my Louise, my business partner, Sean McCoy. Hey, how's it going? Everybody doing all right tonight? Applause, applause, laughter. Good, good. Glad to hear it. So... We're supposed to talk about the podcast, and what can we say? We also do elevator pitches for games, giving the soul of the game in just a minute. We have guests on on a regular occasion, but every episode that ends in a zero is a zero episode where we catch you up. We have knaves, which I already explained, our listeners, but we also have knights, and those are the knaves that send in their audio recording to contribute to the show. And where do they send that recording, Sean? Podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. That's right. And then we knight you if it's good enough, but we have yet to get a bad one, so we're really hoping for a bad one soon. Did you say what this podcast is about? I don't think you did. Yeah, it's about the stories we make while playing the games we love. Okay. It's about board games, tabletop games, yo. Speaking of which, one of our knights, Sir James York, emailed me with a very specific request. He was asking... How did we come up with Two Rooms and a Boom? What's the story behind Two Rooms and a Boom? And I'm surprised we haven't talked about it on a Zero episode. Certainly we had to have before. But you want to talk about that, Sean? Sure. Yeah. What do you want to know, James? Yeah. Yeah, James. They do have that radio app, by the way. What is it? Radio FM or something where you can make your podcast live and people can call in live? I think we should do that sometime. I haven't heard of that one, but I've heard of similar ones. Yeah. Yeah. They're out there. Maybe. Yeah. That's another idea. If you want us to do that, let us know by sending in your emails, podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. But why are we even here? Well, we made a company, Tuesday Night Games. It was named after the fact that every Tuesday for pretty much two decades, I had a game night over at my house where we played tabletop games. And I met Sean. We fell in love. We decided to start a board game company together. But before that... We came up with a game together, Two Rooms and a Boom. And Two Rooms and a Boom is considered a success, I believe. Would you say successful, Sean? Considered by who? It's we, weird. we consider it a success? Or are you asking if it's considered a success <laughs> yeah. by the industry? The reality is I just feel uncomfortable saying, oh, it's a great game. It's so successful. Because it's ours. It's kind of like bragging about, I don't know, how much you bench pressed. Hey. How much you bench? I would say it's our flagship game. It's the game that's selling and, you know, paying the bills. And it's our first game. And we've only got two games out. So, you know, it's a big deal for us, for sure. 
it's not Catan or anything, but I think it's a pretty worthwhile entry in the social deduction hidden role genre. Hidden role game, six to 30 players play a game in less than 30 minutes, and it's in two different play areas. But how do we come up with this? How did we come up with two rooms and a boom? Well, you were the big impetus. You're the one who started it, Sean. So why don't you start the story? Uh, you don't have to go all the way back. You don't have to tell the details of our time when we met in Vegas. You don't have to talk about the magic show that we saw with the creepy magicians. We can just talk about the creation of Two Rooms and a Boom. I certainly don't have to talk about them now that you mention them. That's right. I was at Origins with Alan in, I think, 2012. He used to run games for the show to get his badge and hotel covered so he would run werewolf or the resistance it was such a big deal to you back then but to me it was just another origins (laughs) because i'm so cool sean i don't even remember the amazing things i've done but continue talking about me well i never said it was amazing but (laughs) you were running these games and i'd never played them before and we played werewolf all night, every night, and I had been working for Majors for a while, so it was the first convention where I'd really like played games just every night as opposed to going out and drinking, and they were so fun. Can't believe that you have never played Werewolf before. Just amazing that you made it to your mid-20s, whatever, without ever having played Werewolf. I don't know. I don't know how that happens. How do you end up at Origins before playing Werewolf? But continue, sir. I think I may have played Mafia once in high school or something like that, but I just hadn't been in part of any groups that that was like their thing. I was aware of it, but I hadn't really ever played it, played it. Certainly not since like being in the industry. And so you invited me to your engagement party, which is called Crystal Con, a few months later, and I had really wanted to make a game like those games because they were so fun. You were inspired. Yes. It had really cracked open because all I'd, I'd been working on Mage Wars which was like a tactical card game, like a Magic the Gathering meets a miniatures game for like a year. And so my idea of like board games at that time was very, very math oriented and balancing spells and components and all these other things. But Enrolled Game just seemed so open, like there was so much you could do with it. So on the plane, I remember coming up with like a hostage negotiation game where there'd be people inside a building and people outside the building and the people outside the building would be trying to find team good and get them out, but team bad would also be trying to get out. And then I brought this to you in the car, I think on their way home. I was like, oh, I got a game idea. And you were very specifically like, is this something you want help with? Is this something you want to give to me? Or is this something you want us to work on together? And I was like, oh no, like let's do it together. And then we did Crystal Con. It was like a week later. And then when we were cleaning up for Crystal Con, you were like, all right, let's kick around that idea for that game you had. And we talked about it for a bit and maybe half an hour, an hour or something like that. And we'd hit some stopping points with some like different durations and like what felt right. And then we sort of took a break for a few hours and they came back later that night and just started throwing stuff out left and right. And it was like, all right, you work on designing the cards, Sean, I'll work on finishing the rules because there were a few sticking points. And that's, I think, really where it came from. What we didn't have yet was how do you choose the hostages How do you handle an odd player count? But the amazing thing was you had the brilliant idea of two different rooms. And that's what really clicked. Like, ah, and your original idea was a bank heist where the bank robbers were hiding as hostages and the police were outside. It was really cool. And obviously the translation into a game, that theme got lost, which is 
kind of sad in a way because I still want to see that. That sounds so amazing. But anywho, that night you did all the cards, did your graphic design thing, and we had prototypes. And then it was the next day we drove to Michigan and went to Protospiel and played it. And I remember I went into the elevator up into the hotel to grab the cards because we had a group of people that said, yeah, we'll try this thing. And it was the first time we were going to try it. And then in the elevator down, I realized, oh shit, what do we have? An odd number of players, what are we going to do? And then we had the president's daughter and I thought, oh, the president's daughter will just bury one card and add in the president's daughter. It was one of these last minute things. And sure enough, we had an odd number of players. But the amazing thing was the response we got. We had people asking to publish it right then after our first playthrough. But I also remember playing it at our friend's house the first time, too. Whew. That was the first time I'd seen you really get emotionally invested in a game, and maybe one of the last times I'd seen you emotionally get invested in a game of Two Rooms and a Boom, mostly because the game worked like we thought it would. It felt tense. It felt like there were decisions to be made. I think it really resonated with you. You knew how to play the game, which is not something I'm great at when I'm designing a game is like what the optimum way to play it would be. But I could see you like running back and forth and the time ending. And I forget whether the bomb went off in your room or not, but you were like, no, and you got down on your knees and sort of yelled. But I could see that like you were really invested in the outcome of the game, not of the product of the game, but of the gameplay, which was a good sign, I thought. Yeah, it was a fun game. We had a blast. <laughs> <laughs> I described Terms of Boom to a mutual friend of ours Boom. earlier today as a game that is 50% mine. 95% Allens in that, like, it gets tough when you sort of, like, one, I don't think you should really draw these kinds of lines, but when you talk about ownership. I never have, let's be clear. You never have? No, I've never said. This is mostly 95% mine and 50% Sean. I've always said, this is our game. This is our baby. You know, it's my DNA mixed with your DNA. We made a baby together, Sean, and that baby's two rooms and a boom. That's why I make the joke that it's 50% mine and 95% yours, because obviously that doesn't add up to 100. We wouldn't be here without me saying, like, let's do this two rooms thing. But you took it from there and really fleshed it out and did all the development, came up with all the roles. I mean, in the core game, not counting the expansions, but the core game's got to be something like 93% all roles you came up with on your own. And so it's just, it's just interesting how stuff like that works out. The designer diary of it is the biggest hurdle was trying to get the two teams organized on which hostages they were sending at the end of time. We were just doing a majority vote for all of the hostages. So when the round would end, three minutes is up, send over your three hostages. It would take like 10 minutes for people to get their act together to send those three hostages. What we did instead was realize, oh, if we just put the responsibility on one person, that would work great. And the fascinating thing is that added so much more to the game because you could betray people. Like if you nominate me as your leader, then I'll make sure that this person goes and so-and-so is a hostage and we kick him out of the room. You get hired, but they don't have a say anymore. You could just send whoever you want. Boom. It added something. But I'll be honest, Sean, there still sometimes at conventions where it takes a little too long, time's up. And the leader realizes, oh, time's up. I better make my choices now. Hmm, who should I choose? Hmm, I don't know. Tiffany's looking kind of... You should have done that during the round. I don't know why you're waiting to the end of the round. So we still tinkered about it a little bit, but 
that's the way it goes. And if you're playing with professionals that are sober, it's usually not a problem. But that was the biggest thing is cutting down the amount of time it took to choose hostages at the end of the round. And as weird as it sounds, I think the number one reason why that's so annoying is it's most annoying to the moderator. When you're playing with no moderator, like not at a convention, just at your home, when one leader's ready to go, the other leader has to get ready to go. So at minimum, you're annoying the other room. But if the other guy's taking a long time, you also now can take a long time. And so water kind of finds its own level where the people in your play group figure out how lax they're willing to be on that kind of thing. But when you're just like a moderator whose job is to run these in and out and it's to corral these people together so that you can get the game moving, it's eight or nine times more annoying than it would be if you were just like a player in one of these games leading your room. Does that make sense? No, you're totally correct. I can't agree with you more. I think it's more annoying for us watching because we're concerned about any of the people that might be getting annoyed by waiting. And more importantly, the people at conventions that are getting annoyed are the ones that are waiting for the next game. Like, hey, I want to get in on this. Cool. This game should be over in three minutes. Five minutes later, come on, leaders, get it together so we can get more people in this game. But I loved how Two Rooms and a Boom just gelled so well with all the werewolf players because werewolf is an elimination game, Two Rooms and a Boom's not, so we play them in the same area at all the conventions, so when people get eliminated from werewolf, they jump in for a quick game of Two Rooms and a Boom, and by the time they play a game or two of Two Rooms and a Boom, that game of werewolf's over and they can start all over again. It's peanut butter and jelly, or as I said in the beginning of this episode, Thelma and Louise. The other history, the big part of a lot of the roles came from after we did Protospiel, I had to go out of town with my wife, and it was an 11-hour drive. And I remember sitting in the car with a notebook, and I was just bouncing ideas off of her. I mean, she won't be offended if I say this. None of the ideas were her for the characters and what they do because she never played. She just helped me with some of the names. And I hashed out a lot of roles right there in that long-ass car ride. But the other place where we got a lot of characters, too, were from our playtesters from Board Game Geek. Because people play this using forums on BGG.com all the time. That was such a great thing, and it really helped spread the popularity of the game before it was even released. But yeah, that's the backstory of Two Rooms in a Boom and how it went from thought to manufacturing and The longer story is the pain in the ass it is to work with plastic cards versus regular cards. Oh my goodness, Sean. (laughs) I'll take the lumps for that one. For the plastic cards? Because I really pushed for plastic cards. I really did. It was a pretty big learning lesson for both of us. Do you remember when I came up with the name Two Rooms and a Boom and your response, your initial response? Oh, I hated it. (laughs) I hated it. And it's one of the strongest parts of the game. I've always been wanting to do the gritty, darker sort of stuff. So like my initial thought of it being like a hostage negotiation game did not vibe with a cute name like Terms and a Boom. But that's not what the game became. So for what the game became, Terms and a Boom is a perfect name for it. It's a terrible name for a hostage negotiation game, but it's a great name for what the game is today, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's light, it's friendly, it's absurd. It's a party game, man. It reminds me of one of my favorite early Crystal Memories is Brian Pope asked all the playtesters for names for the world in which the game Mage Wars would be set. And everybody sent in a bunch, and you sent in a bunch, and you also sent in like, uh, oh, and my wife thinks we should call it Planet Mage. So uh, 
I won't be asking for her advice anymore. <laughs> and I was like, that's so funny. And I could totally picture Crystal being like, hmm, Planet Mage. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sir James York, I hope that satiates your curiosity. But for those new knaves that are wondering, how did Sir James York get the title? Sir James York, he was knighted by submitting a knave tonight submission. And how about we go ahead and we knight another knave today, Sean? How about that? My name is Jeremy, and this story isn't about me. So I love role-playing D&D, Cthulhu, Vampire, Gumshoe, Fate, whatever. I'm something of an elitist, though, so I like running them a lot more than I like playing them. It's the spring of 2016, and I'm running a game called Mutant City Blues. Oh, it's great. It's an investigative game. Sort of like Heroes meets Law and Order or CSI, and the players are all mutant cops. Oh, it's great. We decided to set it in our hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. Around my table is the usual playgroup, plus one new guy. We're going to call him Giorgio. So Giorgio's character was an old man named McDaniels. He spelled it with two N's. To this day, Giorgio isn't fantastic at role-playing. He's got trouble with improv, it's just a fact. He doesn't really have a defined voice for his character, McDaniels. And like the rest of the characters, he's got crazy X-Men powers. But Giorgio can never figure out how to use them right. Uh, even when he does have creative ideas, he's built his character in such a weird way that they're almost always useless. While his teammates have analytic taste and acid spit and concussion beams, uh, Giorgio can talk to birds and lower the room temperature. His character's only defining features are that he loves to work on his car, that he's close to retirement, and that he's kinda lazy. Every time I ask for backstory, He's just working on his car. Characters usually have skills rated from between like 5 and 10, but Giorgio doesn't seem to have any skills above 4. <sighs> the campaign goes on. Giorgio is part of the group, but he's totally outclassed by the rest of the characters in action and improv and puzzle solving ability. Yeah, he's great, but you know. I make a big mistake. I write him off as a GM. Everyone else gets backstory and development, but Giorgio, he just gets jokes. It's summer of 2016. We're nearing the end of the campaign. In-game, there is a terror attack at Crocker Park in Westlake. The party's torn. Do they stay and help the wounded, or do they chase after the attackers? It's a tough choice, but they have to choose to serve rather than protect. It looks like the terrorists are getting away. I play some sad music. And then... Giorgio grabs some dice. I've got this, he says, and he jumps into the car. We're all flabbergasted. Giorgio's always been a follower. His character never does anything cool. He explains how he peels out of the Westgate parking lot. He chases the terrorists onto I-90. His in-game knowledge and real-life knowledge are in perfect sync. He's calling out the landmarks. His character is dodging and weaving between cars, getting closer and closer, driving at 80 miles an hour. They're passing by Lakewood and nearing downtown. The roads are getting packed. The terrorists try to get off the highway, I say. They've got super senses and mutant speed, so it's going to be basically impossible to catch them. Try me, says Giorgio. 
He picks up a six-sided dice and rolls it. He adds some stats together. I do the same. That's how contested rolls work in Mutant City Blues. Uh, the terrorists rolled a 12, so they get away. Giorgio stops me. I have got a 24 in driving, he says. In a game where having five is good, Giorgio has four times that. We lose it. This whole campaign has been one long con. Every time he was working on his car, he was souping it up. Every time he wasn't paying attention, he was role-playing out a daydream. His character wasn't obsessive and thinking about his car. All his powers, all his abilities are built to make him the ultimate speed demon. And we just never bothered to ask. We roll on the floor laughing. And I mean it. I don't mean raffle. I mean we're actually on the ground. Everyone's got tears in their eyes. We got conned good. We didn't even bother to roll anything to finish the encounter. Giorgio drove circles around the competition, literally. He had them boxed in and handcuffed in 15 minutes. I never underestimated the player again. Boom. That's such an interesting story. It hits on a lot of my pet peeves with role-playing. I don't think you have to be good at improv or funny voices to be good at a role-playing game. I don't think you have to be good at coming up with backstory or coming up with story at all. Now, that's because of my background and the way I like to play games, where they're more like a combination of roguelikes and escape rooms than they are like collaborative improv storytelling. Stories happen, but I think they're a byproduct the same way story is a byproduct of, say, a good game of Werewolf or Tombs and a Boom, not what the games are about. That's me. I know there's a huge world out there that's different, but it sounds like that's what Jeremy learned here was that one, like a lot of this can be solved by paying attention to your players and what they seem to be interested in and driving towards what they want to do. But he learned that about not writing players off. And obviously, I'm sure there's a whole lot of nuance here, and I'm I'm not going to judge either the GM or the players based on, you know, like one four minute story. This is a game that you're playing with friends. So like if they want to do something, how can you cater to that? Or if that's not the game you're playing, how can you just be a little clear to them? You know, like, hey, we're not playing that type of game. So it sounds like he got all the right things out of it, but it just, it hit all those very particular role play game things <laughs> about it for me where like my senses were going off. Like, uh. Yeah, I'm right in line with you. When it comes to a role playing group, it's such a hard thing to come up with. It's basically coming up with a perfect bank heist team like Ocean's Eleven, because if you just get one bad person in your group, it can really bring the whole group down. I have a long toward history of trying to get people together and figuring out the perfect formula for what makes for my own personal favorite role-playing group and that everyone's having fun. I think you discussed a lot of the notes that I thought of too. I'm probably more of the improv voice character myself, but that doesn't mean I require my players to or expect other players to. That's what the dice are there for. If you don't have the charisma but you want to play someone who's really charismatic, you can have the dice do it for you. So instead of role-playing, actually acting out a whole scene where, so, I think you mean to say that these aren't the droids that you're looking for, am I right, sir? (laughs) Or whatever you're trying to act out. Instead, you want to say, hey, I want to just be charismatic and get these guys to like me and distract them while my friends go out the back door. Can I do that? Yeah, you shouldn't have to act it out. You should be able to roll the dice. Yeah, that comes up a lot, and I could talk about that forever, like the charisma thing. But sort of like in combat, people are fine saying like, ooh, I do a backflip around him, 
and then uh, slip my dagger right uh, behind his back and then choke him with a garrot, garret, whatever. People have no problem describing feats of physicality that they would not be able to do. And I think the same can be true with social or charismatic events. You could say things like, oh, I lie to him about where we're going to be, but I'm very careful. You can describe the way you would lie that you would not yourself be able to do under pressure. You could say, okay, I'm, I'm very charming and I, I buy them a drink and I'm very complimentary and I ask them lots of questions about themselves. You can describe the way in which you are charismatic without having to act it out or without being able to do it in real life. But you could still do it like you would anything else in the game. The other point about Jeremy Wong's story was he started off saying, it's great. It's like law and order. And heroes. When I heard that description, my own personal taste was, oh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't want a law and order show that has tears like that sounds horrific to me. If someone said, hey, you want to role play? I'm like, sure. What's the universe? What's it like? Oh, you know, law and order. Yes, I know law and order. It's like that. But combine it with mutant powers like in heroes. Oh, okay. I, you know, I think I'm kind of busy. I appreciate it, guys. But what I did love is that it was in Cleveland, which is my hometown. So when he was talking about Crocker Park and Lakewood and I-90, I know all those landmarks. I know it grew up here. So that's kind of cool and relatable. And that's something I've never actually done. I've never role played in an environment that I have lived in, in real life. Of course, we borrow aspects of our actual life when we role play in a fictional world. It's impossible to totally separate it from what you know and who you are, but I've never actually done it in a literal Cleveland or it's actually me in the role playing game. So I really like that. And I think this comes back to the main point is even though that that's not perhaps your role playing style or my role playing genre or system, I still appreciate the story. So here's the big question, Sean. Does Knave Jeremy Wong deserve to be knighted? Uh, No. Yeah, I think he does. I think that's a good story. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We could have played that up a bit. We could have been like, sorry, Jeremy, but we really appreciate it. We got our first Knave that failed to be knighted. (laughs) But that's just us being dicks. So no, Jeremy, I really appreciate the story. And I think there's a lot to learn. Obviously, At the very least, it's a great conversational piece about getting together with your friends and role-playing. I like that it was about someone else. It didn't have to be about something personal. It was just a gaming anecdote that he was witness to. I mean, it was about him, and it wasn't about him. I thought that was cool. Let's do this, then. Here we go. Nave Jeremy Wong, take a knee and allow us to thank you for your honorable contribution to the Tuesday Night Podcast. You took the time to record your story and to email it to us. And for that, we dub thee Sir Jeremy Wong. Rise, no longer a knave, no, but a knight, sir. A knight of the Tuesday Night Podcast. (laughs) Yay, Jeremy. Sir Jeremy Wong. Thank you. I kind of like Sir Wong. I like that. Has a nice ring to it. Cool. That's the other stuff that we do on this podcast. We also answer any of your questions, comments, concerns. We'd like to hear your responses to Sir Jeremy Wong's Nave Tonight submission. Did it inspire any comments in you? Please share them. Send them to podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. 
And if you want to follow us on the tweets, you can do that too. We're at PlayTKG. I'm Alan Gerding, A-L-A-N-G-E-R-Ding. You can find me on the Facebook and tweets. You can find me on Twitter at Sean McCoy, S-E-A-N-M-C-C-O-Y. And I think with that being said, this episode is... Finished! Yeah, finished. It is finished. Hey, once you pop, that's great. They're the delicious chip that you can crunch on. They got great flavors, like potato chip flavor. Yeah, yeah.